The Department of Homeland Security is pledging to master the use of artificial intelligence while also using it safely and responsibly. DHS's top official, Secretary Mayorkas, recently signed a new AI directive and named the department's chief AI officer. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. I guess they're catching up to Veterans Affairs, which has a chief AI architect, Gail Alterowitz. What's the latest on what DHS is doing here, Justin? Well, in August, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, signed out a new policy statement on the acquisition and use of artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies by DHS components. This is really the first across-the-board DHS policy for using AI and acquiring AI, a pretty significant thing there too. Uh, This policy was required by the Fiscal 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. And it says DHS must indeed master, that's that's the quote, this technology, applying it effectively and building a world-class workforce that can reap the benefits of AI. At the same time, it says DHS will use it responsibly and in a trustworthy manner. They'll have to rigorously test these algorithms to be effective and they'll ensure that it safeguards privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties as well. So really a policy that tries to cover all the bases here on how DHS components could use AI-enabled systems going forward. Another quick note, it says DHS will not collect, use, or disseminate data that actually makes or supports decisions based on biases around race, ethnicity, gender, national origin, religion, all those types of things. So explicitly states that as well. It sounds like they're pretty much in sync with the way the federal government across the board is going at AI, as we heard earlier in Jason Miller's reporting. That's right. I mean, DHS's policies come as leading AI executives meet with members of Congress and point to the need for regulations and other guardrails. And this really quickly progressing field of, you know, generative AI and, and all these related AI and machine learning technologies. DHS earlier this year established an AI task force to focus on specific applications of AI. Mayorkas's latest memo establishes an AI policy working group that will look to implement this new directive and then come up with actually something a bit broader and more formal a bit more uh, permanent on the instruction of AI throughout the DHS. President Joe Biden is also expected to issue his own executive order on AI later this year. And the Office of Management and Budget, uh, as we've heard from uh, our colleagues at Federal News Network, is is floating draft AI requirements for federal agencies. There's a lot of churn in this space right now, so there's a lot going on. And let's talk about that idea of an artificial intelligence chief, a chief AI officer. I guess that's four letters. A chow, you might say. And let's dig into that. Who is it and what will they do? Yeah, DHS announced that Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen will serve as the department's chief AI officer. He's keeping the CIO title. He's being dual-hatted as the chief AI officer. He'll be uh, the one primarily responsible for promoting both AI innovation and safety across DHS. He's actually testified at a House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearing last week, and he talked about how DHS is already using AI to combat fentanyl trafficking, to investigate, you know, child exploitation crimes, and then to verify traveler identities at airports. And with regards to law enforcement use, of course, that's a big use case for for AI at DHS. He says AI is decision support for law enforcement officers.
I want to assure you that we are leveraging AI uh, as decision support for our law enforcement officers, but that ultimately the, our officers are the ones responsible for making law enforcement decisions. Uh, I also see tremendous potential to use AI to remove uh, repetitive paperwork and administrative tasks that our officers have to do that they would tell you and they tell me dulls their focus from their security mission. And again, that's Homeland Security CIO and now Chief AI Officer Eric Heisen. And Justin, you're also reporting there's some more recommendations from all over for how DHS should get at this AI. What are they hearing and who's telling them? Yeah, the Homeland Security Advisory Council this week actually issued draft recommendations to DHS on AI and the council met last week, excuse me, to to approve a draft report and recommendations on uh, how DHS should approach this big issue. One of the big recommendations was creating a centralized office or group to ensure DHS keeps pace with the rapidly changing technology. Of course, we've got the chief AI officer now and a couple centralized groups who are looking at this. Another one was encouraging DHS to pursue off-the-shelf commercial solutions wherever possible instead of building everything in-house. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was present at that meeting last week. He spoke about the need to change the procurement capabilities at DHS to keep up with this technology. He also talked about how DHS can't try to use AI for every mission and use case. We're going to need to prioritize what aspect of our mission should we really double down on to harness AI, because I worry about diluting our focus too much. And I really do want to demonstrate very as quickly as is responsible how this could really be a game changer for us in advancing our mission. We have to pick our spots here, in my view, somewhat surgically. Surgically. Okay. That's the word from Secretary Mayorkas. And Justin, besides these new AI policies that they're in the midst of developing now, they're also putting guardrails around something that just seems to be a constant bugaboo, and yet it has provided so much productivity in passenger processing at airports and elsewhere, and that's facial recognition. What's going on there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, DHS on September 11th issued another first across-the-board policy on the use of face recognition, and face capture technologies. And as you pointed to, this is a a big deal. Uh, The use of these technologies continues to be controversial. There's concerns that there could be bias in these technologies, which are often recognized as a form of artificial intelligence. So it's certainly connected to DHS's use of AI. The policy directs DHS components to only use face recognition technologies that have been thoroughly tested to ensure there is no unintended bias or disparate impact in accordance with standards set by places like the National Institute of Standards and Technology. DHS's Science and Technology Director is officially made responsible for overseeing the testing of these technologies. And it also mandates that face recognition technologies can't be used as the sole basis for law or civil enforcement related actions. So they're setting some guardrails here around face recognition technologies, because as with AI, DHS is increasingly relying on those technologies across a lot of their missions. I think facial recognition worries a lot of people because that was the original place where bias was discovered because algorithms had been trained on a database of faces that included only certain characteristics, you know, all white people or all males or whatever the case might be, and then it doesn't do good on everybody else. And I think that's part of the problem. 
that they want to make sure they, they train it right and then deploy it right. So this is yeah. all happening, and the AI officer job at DHS then is effective immediately? That's right. It's effective immediately. Uh, you know, Eric Heisen, DHS CIO, is, is that chief AI officer. And it, it sounds like they're going to move to really look at a lot of their policies and, and try to both support implementation of AI across DHS's many components, but then also make sure it's done responsibly as well. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways. So that is, at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, 
to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself, and in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And... I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence, because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles. I think so, because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust but your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, What's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, I certainly had some skills, I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. 
And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to yeah. meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. that You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Uh, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit. You've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And 
in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Poland, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as, when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.